Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <coughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkle of the weird and macabre. And your hosts are me, Bob Dale. And me, Ali Downey. And we are going to delve into your earlobes with a new story from British history of true crime-esque this evening. Um, I was really worried about that tonight, Al. Uh, based on the last uh, time we recorded was uh, the Patreon episode and I couldn't even do the intro. <laughs> That's what happens after four months of not being allowed in the pub and getting told that you have to leave by 10 to 8. Uh, so those of you that will have listened to the Patreon episode, I apologise for my slevers, but if you're not used to it by now, then... It was really good. It took slightly longer than normal. It did take quite a while to record that episode, but I, I had a wonderful evening. Yeah, it was great fun. <laughs> so um, rest assured, everybody, we are on tip-top form this evening, of course. Stone Cold Sober. That will hopefully change throughout the duration of the podcast, and we'll do our best to um, drink our combinations of Scottish and Polish beers, I believe. Yeah, baby. Um, are you well? I am fantastic. How's being back at work, Al? It's really good. It's lovely to be interacting with people again. Yeah, yeah. other than like... Two yeah, other than my mum and dad, my little bubble. <laughs> and our garden studio, of course. Yeah. Uh, we are still rocking the garden studio. Um we are have been reliably informed that the trains will get back to normal just before we get to go to the pub. So Ali and I will be on the tippest of toppest forms in a couple of weeks' time. Or the worst of forms. Or the worst of forms. You're going to see the best or worst of Twisted Britain. Before we get going, uh, I'm going to give a big shout out to everybody who's taking part in our game Where's Wolfie? <laughs> Invented on air. Invented on air and uh, with every photograph of a... African version of Virginia Woolf I could possibly find on the internet. If I find another one, I will I will hit it up. But the two rounds of Ting Part, everybody seems to have very much enjoyed. I had my correcting my spelling corrected in Wolfie on Instagram, but I feel when you've made up the game and the word, <laughs> yeah. I can spell it however I want. Yeah, it's your word. <laughs> it's our word. So uh, That's our word. For those of you that have played along, uh, well done to most of you, everybody spotting who Virginia Woolf was. It was... Uh, 
the lady on the far, oh, the man lady in the tur- in the African turban on yeah. the far left in both the photos that we put up. Uh, if you haven't played along already, you now know the answer. So there you go. Worth looking at anyway, though. Absolutely worth checking the, the photos out. They're quite something. Uh, that story went down a storm with people, Al. So uh, you've got a bit to follow there. Oh, don't worry. I have already gone down the rabbit hole on the next one. Yeah. We, it's already expanded into what I think will be Twisted Britain's first two-parter. Yeah, we're doing... Two, Ali has rocked up on board uh, Twisted Britain and has just informed me that he's doing a two-parter, which is fine with me because I get a week off in between. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to... I mean, the first, the second one of those two-parters will be in the pub recording, so you, you might just be talking to yourself while I'm just, like, dancing around. But um, Under the table. No, I'll have my headphones on so I can hear what you can say. Of course. So, um, I'm not rude. Come on now. Um, but this one, uh, this week, has come out of a conversation we had. I'd wandered, you, wandered with you up towards uh, the taxi rank last week or the week before, I can't remember when it was now, and said, uh, to, we were talking about cases that I'd like to cover that we've never covered before, and uh, some of the stuff that we had done so that you didn't do... Something we'd done before. Something we'd done before. Um, but basically I'd said to you, I wanted to, I wanted to do a case on treason, and there was a specific case on treason that I wanted to cover, but I'll not say what that is yet, because I'll, I'll maybe come back to that one day if I can summon the, the, the ability to do so. But I, I thought, do you know what? I'm not going to do my normal random searching of the internet. I'm just going to look for high treason UK. And so I did. Uh, and uh, there's a there's a couple of cases in that are seen as high treason that I was like, oh yeah, I absolutely don't want to cover it. There's one that was the, you know, the last case in the UK that was tried. There's that and all that kind of stuff. But this case, however, is where I fell down a wee rabbit hole. And I came across a story from the 1800s. Now there is treason in it. But I'm going to kind of class this more as a case of radicalised terrorism. Terrorism? Terrorism, yeah. Now, when I say radicalised terrorism, obviously the, the automatic thing that jumps to your head is is, is the uh, modern Muslim faith and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm not, obviously that's not what we're talking about. However, this man was radicalised. Um, and he was radicalised, however, by a London society. The, the man's name was Arthur Thistlewood. He was a radical activist and responsible for organising the Cato Street Conspiracy, which was a plot to try and assassinate the Prime Minister and every member of the Cabinet as well. So he had a big aims. He had shite follow-through. So this week, I'm going to tell you about the Cato Street Conspiracy, which I told you about, obviously, before we did this. Briefly. Uh, yet... You came back to me. I sent you the synopsis. Basically that bit that, you know, it was, it was a plot to assassinate the Prime Minister. And you went, oh, no, I don't want, no, because I want to read about that now. But I presume you did your bit and, and had a skim. I did. Before we get on to the Cato Street conspiracy in, its, in what happened, there's a, bit, there's a lot of background that goes into it. Now, I'm not going to cover the entire background of it because, um, yeah, we could probably do an entire series of episodes on it. So I'm going to break it down into the bits that I went, that's important, that's important, that's important. Here's the execution. Yeah. Right? So I'll start off with a bit about um, Arthur before we get to the plot at hand. Um, and here I'll give you a kind of bit of a brief overview of his early life before he becomes a radical. So Thistlewood was born in Lincolnshire in 1774. And he had not too bad a wee life to, uh, to start with. He was the son of a successful farmer and animal breeder. Uh, and he attended Horns Castle. Breeder Gram- of Animals. Breeder of animals, not breeder with animals. 
Um, yeah, so he attended Horns Castle Grammar School, where he trained as a land surveyor. He soon got bored of the job he trained to do uh, and sorted a, uh, sought out a different life um, and joined the army aged 21 in 1795. It didn't last too long and he left the army a few uh, in the first few years. I couldn't find exactly, but the first couple of years of 1800s anyway. So he was there for five years or so, minimum. Yeah, but before the Napoleonic Wars all broke out. We'll come to them ever so slightly. Later on. Touch on it. Very much touch on it. I'll maybe mention the fact that it's this time. (laughs) Um, So Arthur married twice in his life, the first time to Jane Worsley, but sadly she died uh, a few years into their marriage whilst giving birth to their child. Four four years later, he married again, this time to Susan Wilkinson. Now, this is the last you will hear of any of his wives because it's the last I found of any of his wives. But... um, I like to bear in mind throughout this that he is married, as far as I can see, throughout the entire of the rest of his life. Which I make a point of saying because I find it quite interesting that the wife, uh, Susan, doesn't come up in any of the rest of the things I could find about him because it very much focuses in on Arthur and what he gets up to, shall we say. So Arthur Thistlewood, he had a thing for uh, acquiring money and then losing it again. Uh, he did that quite a few times in his life. He, he found, uh, not fortune, but he found enough money to live by and then quickly lost it again in, 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 through mainly stupidity. Misadventure. Know. Yeah. Um, you could argue that all of this may be death by misadventure, just a very long misadventure. Um, anyway, the, the worst of the times where he, he kind of came into money and lost it again was um, when with the... F- with his father's help, he bought a farm and planning to make that his life. Now, he had grown up a, father, a farmer's son, so seems re- reasonably um, sensible. Yeah. Seems reasonably sensible to go, I know how to farm, I'll carry on. You carry on your father's legacy. He failed. He lost all the money. This time he lost all his dad's money too. Um, and this is what made him make the big move to London. And that's where I'll pick up with his story a bit later on. Before we get to that, however, I'd like to tell you a bit about another man, Thomas Spence. Now, Thomas Spence is a bit of an oddball. He was uh, a child to a rather poor family and one of 19 children. 19? I think he was the 19th of 19 children. Every sperm is sacred. Uh, uh, In that family. Either that or there was only 19 of them. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Thomas Spence stood at a massive five foot tall. That's not massive. No. But what he lacked in height, he made it more than made up for in, in big ideas and drive, shall we say. He wasn't a dumb man by any means. How um, He just came, I hate to say born into the wrong family, but he he certainly had the brains to go off and do something. He was just born into a poor family. And, and, and we're talking about the you know, mid 1700s here, you know, that very much your class was determined. You know, it was, was that, you could go that nature nurture debate. It was very much your nurture decided where you were. Yeah. You wouldn't have the opportunities to. No, he had no opportunities. Yeah. Despite, however, those lack of opportunities, by the late 1700s, we're talking about the time that Arthur Thistlewood was born, um, he'd become one of the most revolutionary figures in England. He believed that lands of England had been stolen from the common man and taken up by the wealthy, 
and that these should be divided equally and given back to the population. He also had a six-point plan that he would champion against the Tory government at the time. Would you like all six points? I would like all six points. Farage me. The end of aristocracy and landlords. Farage wouldn't like that. Two, all lands should be publicly owned by democratic parishes, which should be largely self-governing. Three, rents of lands and parishes should be shared equally amongst the parishioners. Four, universal suffrage, including female suffrage, at both parish level and through a system of deputies elected by parishes to a national senate. Number five, a social guarantee extended to provide income for those unable to work. And six, the rights of infants to be free from abuse and poverty. It sounds like a good six-point plan. I mean, I'm not going to say I disagree with him at all. Yeah. And what he champions here um, seems like a reasonable thing. It's, it's very socialist, I would go down the road of. Yeah. You know, you have, a lot of that has... Uh, not all of it. Some of it's happened. You know, there's the UN Rights of the Child Act is probably exactly what his point six is. Your social guarantee is a basic living wage, which you get in some of the Scandi countries, yeah. pay, don't they? And I've... I mean, the only thing I have take exception in this they don't give the land to the churches they'll just they'll get rich instead of anybody else yeah richer richer indeed but like i said i don't disagree with what he's championing um but let's just go with the tory government that had been in place for about 50 years at the time of our main crime this evening didn't like his ideas much um and he found himself in jail on more than one occasion most notably for high treason Hence how I found this case, actually. He spent seven months in jail despite never actually being found guilty of the charge. Now, there was a bit I was reading about basically what had happened is because of uh, Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution and things like that, the government was tied up with other things. Mm -hmm. And due to that, they didn't try him. And there was a, a term that was used, and I can't remember what it is, and it's ridiculous. It was kind of a Latin term that basically said... Um, he wasn't given due cause. Uh, they didn't try him as a fair man. So they just locked him up for seven months and went, oh, shit, oh, we forgot to try that guy. Uh, send him out, so he's fine. So that's who Thomas, Thomas Spence was and what he stood for. He was basically a socialist radical um, that um, was around at the same time as Arthur Thistlewood. So this is where we get back to Arthur. We pick back up with him travelling to London, and he's a bit pissed off with the world, let's say. Now, it's worth remembering that at this time, England was not a very pleasant place at all. No. Wages were incredibly low. In fact, they'd been lowered due to the cost of battles fought against the French, um, Napoleonic Wars, indeed. And the Spanish. And the Spanish. um, And due to the the shortage of goods at the time, the cost of essential items, such as soap and candles, were really high. So you had essential items costing a ton of money and folk working all the live long day for fuck all money. So there wasn't a huge amount of happiness, let's say, in England. Or in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland at the time either. As, as a whole, the, the UK wasn't the, the smartest, the smiliest of nations at the time. Couple that with a lot of transient movement of the population. So we see loads of cities having a huge influx of those coming from the country to find their fortune. You think uh, Dick Whittington, that kind of thing. So the upshot of all of this is that those cities couldn't really do a lot 
to keep up with the demands of a growing population. So those essential items that were hard to come by at all became even more uh, difficult to come by because the populations in the areas that had them were swelling and swelling and swelling. Yeah. So the kind of social discord at the time was of unhappiness and who's to blame? Well, who gets to blame when all these things happen? It's the government. What I did find interesting when I was reading this, actually, I thought you'd like this, is the things that are listed as um, essential items were soap, candles. You can get that. They, they were aware that keeping yourself clean kept away disease by this point. And candles were the only source of light at night. Yep. Salt for food preservation. Yeah. And malt. For whiskey. For, bar- for ale. See, I, w- I wanted to see whether it was for the production of ale for clean water or a folk just on the solid single malts. I hope it's the solid single malts. <laughs> I really do. Anyway, that was just a wee bit of the side here. And it's against this backdrop of kind of social... Unrest. S- unrest that we find uh, Arthur Thistlewood arriving in London. Not long after he arrives in London, he finds himself joining a society the London Society I was telling you about earlier, that ended up radicalising him. The society he joins is the Society of Spensian Philanthropists. Spensian Philanthropists? Whose founder was, of course, a Mr Thomas Spence. Of course it was. It's at this point that society goes from championing the six rights I mentioned before to a bit more, shall we say, physical in their way of doing things. Enforcing. Yes, rather than championing, they're enforcing. Absolutely. Thistlewood takes not too long to find himself as one of the leaders of the society. Now, he has, obviously, he's had that military training. He's had uh, waves and troughs of business uh, where he's done well. So he obviously is quite a... Intelligence, probably the right word but maybe not used in the right context here. He's, he's a, Experienced. Yeah, absolutely. He's not a young buck joining in. Yeah. So as one of the leaders of the society, he finds himself helping out to organise um, gatherings of people, or in his head, the uprising of the people. That's a bit of conjecture on my part, but he is definitely falling into that, I'm uh, going to change the world. And that's where we talk about the Sparfield riot. The Sparfield riot was a billed as a mass meeting of people who believed in the Spensorian way of things. The six-point plan earlier. Maybe I'd have gone along. I think in Thistlewood's head, it was a, a riot. It was a plan to get people together and start that uprising. Yeah. But not, you know, that's not how it's billed, obviously. Um... Yeah, that's not how it's built. And let's just say that the rioting wasn't discouraged on that their part at all. And that's playing things down quite a bit, as they did intend on trying, if the opportunity arose, to seize control of the Tower of London and the Bank of England. So two big moves away from a mass gathering of peaceful people. Of course, uh, the authorities didn't like this. Um, and upon learning the plan, the police took the decisive action and dispersed the gathering crowds, dispersing Thistlewood and one other leader, charging them, again, with high treason. But both of them were acquitted. Okay. Thistlewood, not a man to step down, 
uh, and, and be oh, a bit timid about things, has a serious set of balls about him. In 1817, when he challenges the then Home Secretary, Lord Sidmouth, who was former British Prime Minister, to a duel. An actual duel? To actual pistols at dawn? Pistols at dawn duel. Amazing. Which was not accepted, but it did see Thistlewood imprisoned for 12 months at Horsham Jail. Nice. I love the fact that he goes, what do you mean? Send all my people home. I challenge you to a duel. <laughs> I'm fucking home secretary. What are you on about? Take him to jail. My duel. Jail. Duel. Jail. Jail wins. <sighs> so after leaving jail this time, it's that uh, Thistlewood comes to be the dominant finger in the spin- figure in the Spencerian philanthropists. Philanthropists. They should have picked an easier to pronounce it's really bad, isn't it? title for their conspiracy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he basically becomes the dominant figure in the Spencer philanthropists. Um, and that's ba- mainly because Thomas Spencer's died by this point. But his um, ideology lived on under the um, leadership of Arthur. Well, Arthur Thistlewood and another man by the name of George Edwards... Now, George Edwards would become the thorn that got the thistle. I'm really sorry about that. That's terrible. <laughs> I had, I was like, I was writing that. I was like, that's really good. And then I read it again. I went, no, it's not. However, I had to do it. So there you are. It's fine. I remember the castle jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll never get away with them. No. I get so much stick for them. So along with George Edwards, a small yet intense group of conspirators decided that enough was enough. And now it's at this point I'd like to go into a bit about why they were so pissed off. So I mentioned that earlier uh, that England was in a bit of a shit show, but there are two things in particular that pissed this group off. The first is the Peterloo Massacre. Now, the Peterloo Massacre, I'm going to come back to and do a, a, maybe I do a Patreon episode or, or, or if we're ever short on one, I'll do a, 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 we can do a two-parter on it or something. You reckon it deserves time for itself? It certainly does. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a brief overview of what the Peterloo Massacre was. So basically, again, it started as a rally to oppose the government, and about 60,000 people had gathered in St. Peter's Field in Manchester, demanding the reformation of the government to be more representative of its people. Not Not an unreasonable demand. Not not an unreasonable demand. However, the, the way that they were dealt with by the government is what pissed people off. The government issued an order for the cavalry to charge on the crowds, I guess to disperse them. However, the scene that follows is absolute chaos, and it leaves 18 people dead and hundreds injured. What was supposed to be a peaceful gathering of the working class turns into the rich slaughtering them. So I guess you could say the philanthropists were rightly pissed off. Yeah. And like I say, that's a really brief overview, and it's something that I would like to come back and have a look at again another time. Yeah. The other thing that made them feel like someone had pissed in their collective cornflakes was that the so-called six acts. These are six government acts that were passed following the Peterloo Massacre, and the basis of them was to suppress meetings that could be any way seen as a supporting radical reform of the government. So basically, if you were seen to be um, getting a group together, and it didn't have to be a very big group, that were actively seeking reformation of the government, you were in breach of the six acts yep, and could be tried for it. Again, I can see why this might have pissed them off, but we must remember that it was a completely different time. 
And I would hazard a guess to say that anyone trying to pass an act in government these days to try and suppress the right of those to protest might leave with a bit of a hiding. And it would certainly leave a bitter taste in the mouth of few. Yeah. At least a few. At least a few. So what we have here is um, what I've colloquially called a cauldron of shit being stirred by a group of devoted conspirators. The proverbial clusterfuck. The proverbial clusterfuck. Um, And how do we think it played itself out? That's where we get to Cato Street. As I said at the beginning, the gist of the idea was that they wanted to murder the entire British cabinet. And not since the gunpowder plot has an idea of such magnitude got so far. So Guy Fox was the last person that had tried to remove the government, let's say. Um, and in the preceding 200 years, all you'd had was um, Tory governments of oppression, essentially, uh, with the, the Whigs taking small bits here and there out of them. The gunpowder plot as well was very religiously motivated. Presumably this is more of a socio-political movement. This was absolutely, yeah, this wasn't religiously driven. This yeah. was definitely more uh, the, a rights of the people. This was supposed to be seen as an uprising of the people. Um, and I had a look into it and I thought, do you know what? There were 200 years between them. We're pretty much bang on 200 years since uh, the Cato Street conspiracy. And the thing that I could find most recently that would relate to about kind of uh, the removing of a British head uh, of power, shall we say, was the IRA bombings that tried to kill Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, Yep, which was almost 200 years. Um, I just find the, the, the gap of 200 years between each. Of course, there was one assassinated British Prime Minister, and I've done an episode on him before, Spencer Percival. Spencer Percival was just before this. So like I said, they had big ideas. They wanted to kill the Prime Minister, who was Robert Jenkinson, the second Earl of Liverpool. And the cabinet, who was made up with some big hitting names of the time, including the Duke of Wellington. Sir Arthur Wellesley. He was not long back from his victory at Waterloo. Um, and they would all in the plan be murdered, beheaded, and their heads displayed on spikes on London Bridge so as to start an uprising of the people. Now, as I'm sure you've guessed, they weren't successful. Because if they were, we'd know a lot more about them as a society. Um, and they would have been much bigger than the gunpowder plot. Now, Guy Fox is that one that sticks in everybody's head because it was such a um, romantic idea. Yeah. The sneaking of gunpowder into the Houses of Parliament is much more romantic than beheading the cabinet and sticking their heads on spikes. Uh, and you can't recreate that every year and have fireworks. No. Because if you did, we'd go through a lot of Prime Ministers. <laughs> we would. Um, but I'll, I'll go through now um, the events of Cato Street Day um, and, the, and, how, and how they went about getting caught. So a wee bit of expanding on the full plan of the day. In the first instance, they planned on assassinating the cabinet at a dinner party and then the heads of the men that would be killed and displayed on the bridge, like I said. And the use of the following confusion and obvious uh, starting of revolution that would, would happen, they would use to ke- take control of the King Street Barracks, the Bishop of London's House, the Lighthouse Barracks in Gray's Inn Lane, the Bank of England, and the Mansion House, which they planned to use as the headquarters for the provisional government that they would put in place 
And of course, as soon as they did all this, the rest of the country would follow suit with all four nations of the United Kingdom uprising and backing the new government. Of course it would. That's big thinking. Yeah. In any day. So the starting point would be the assassination, obviously. They knew the cabinet always met for dinners together, at least once a month. And apart from a short period after following the death of King George III, it became a regular occurrence. Then the group learned that the cabinet were due to hold one of these dinners at Grosvenor Square. And they learned of this as it was reported in the papers. So the conspirators assembled in a loft in the nearby Cato Street, hence the name. And this is where they set about gathering arms and making homemade hand grenades. The main problem here, of course, was it was a fake dinner. And it had been so well faked that even the caterers of the event didn't know the cabinet were not coming. And so the ruse could not be spotted to the outside because to anybody on the outside, it looked like the preparations were going on. Love it. But why was it faked and how? Serving plates of food to cardboard cutouts of ministers. I, you see, when I, I'm glad you said that because when, <laughs> when I was reading this and doing the research for it, I was like, is it that Home Alone moment where they're moving the cardboard figures <laughs> back and forward down yes. the windows? <laughs> They've just got some a couple of guys in top hats just yeah. and, and pipes going. Rah, 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 rah. Two guys with wires <laughs> attached to sick cardboard cutouts. Well, the authorities had gotten wind of the plot to attack the cabinet. But how? And from who? Well, you remember the thorn in the thistle I talked about earlier? Yes. George Edwards. He was a spy. He was a police spy and had been working undercover to infiltrate the Spencian philanthropists and he nailed it. He'd been in the most inner circle, and while the plan had been developed, he'd taken all the details back to the police. So it was always doomed to fail. But they were given time to gather a bit of momentum and get together so that they would all be in the same place. And have enough rope to hang themselves, presumably. Exactly that, yeah. Yeah. When they did gather together in the loft of the property on Cato Street, they were ready to go. However, that would be as far as they got. On the evening of the supposed dinner-slash-attack, they were putting the final preparations together when who should pop up through the hatch into the attic? The Bow Street Runners. Now, the Bow Street Runners, we've talked about in the podcast before, but they were essentially the first professional police force. Yeah, uh, proto-police. Yeah, and they were put in place by the, the Magistrate of London. I uh, always like to think of them as the uh, town watch because I've read a lot of Pratchett. I also, in my head, want them to pop up through the hatch into the attic like what's going on here <laughs> hey you guys <laughs> hello 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 yeah absolutely now the scene that followed i picture a bit like uh, a fight scene in picture uh, in any action film mixed with a bit of benny hill uh, a mild amount of fighting uh, a lot of chaos and yakety sack playing <laughs> in the background only that yeah. forever more so as the Bro Street Runners entered the attic, they surprised the men, and there was a rush of conspirators to leave and the police to enter. The melee that followed found Thistlewood the only man to take up his sword and run at the police, with Officer Richard Smithers being caught on the wrong end of his cavalry sword and being run through. Smithers' reported last words were, Oh God, I'm... where he fell to the ground and died in the attic. Feel free to put in any word you want after I'm. I'm presuming it's dying, uh, not I'm your dad, I'm your... I'm your brother. Um, it could be anything, but yeah. Oh, God, I'm... Oh, God, I'm slightly hurt. Oh, 
tis but a flesh wound. No, it's not your arms off. <laughs> Many of the men in the attic managed to escape the scene, including Arthur Thistlewood. But this was no good, because the spy in the fold, George Edward, had already provided the police with detailed, de- with detailed descriptions of all involved, and less than a day later, all the conspirators were rounded up, Thistlewood having been found hiding in a safe house not far away. In total, 13 men were arrested and charged with treason, three of them turning king's evidence and played witness for the crown in exchange for their lives. All of the remaining 10 were sentenced to death. And then in the normal way for treason at the time, or around this time, sorry, would have been hung, drawn and quartered, i.e. they would have been hanged until nearly dead, where they would have been lowered, had their innards removed before hanging until dead, and then cut in four parts to be disposed of how the king saw fit. Yeah. They lucked out a little bit. Because in a twist to the normal hung, drawn, hang, drawn and quarter, the law had been changed seven years prior to this. And the, uh, the actual removing of the innards had been made like, it's a bit grim, we're modern now, let's not do that. So instead they were to be dragged on hurdles to the place of execution and hanged, with their heads cut off and bodies quartered. Now, I couldn't find what a hurdle was. I looked a few places and went, and I'm just presuming it was like a sheet of wood or something. I don't really know. But either way, the hurdling was dropped and they were just taken probably by a cart to to the gallows. Dragged. Grim. Yeah. Five of the condemned, so ten, ten folk condemned to death. Five of them had their sentences reduced to transportation. They were just taken to the gallows and then taken away again. Uh, No, they were put on a boat and sent to Australia. Oh, right. Uh, Where I read one report that one of them became a constable in the police. It is... Like, don't get me wrong. I always know and you always hear about it being a penal colony and that's like why we sent our criminals and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, ah, yeah, it's really... It's a funny joke now. But you forget that that is where most of the white people in Australia came from. Yeah. Up until the, what was it, the £10 tickets in the 60s and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so this guy who had been contended to death, essentially, for a conspiracy to behead the British Prime Minister, eventually became a policeman in Australia. I mean, he probably had eight months on a boat to think about what he'd done. But I just find that... Anyway, it just Incredible. Baffled, yeah, it just baffled me a little bit when I was reading it. So we have five left. And the five left to hang were Arthur Thistlewood, Richard Tidd, James Ings, William Davidson, and John Brunt. Arthur Thistlewood gave one last speech to those gathered at the gallows, which was a crowd of reportedly 100,000 people. This was his last speech. Albion is still in chains of slavery. I quit it without regret. I shall be consigned to the grave and my body will be mirrored beneath the soil whereupon I first drew breath. My only sorrow is that the soil should be there as a theatre for slaves, for cowards and for despots. My motives, I doubt not, will hereafter be justly appreciated. Those are pretty good last words. Pretty good. It's a lot better than, oh God, I'm... (laughs) Oh God, I'm... Albion is still in... Maybe he was going to break into it, you never know. Um, I'm just a poor boy. From a poor family. Maybe he was going into Bohemian Rhapsody, we just didn't know it. Uh, So that was Arthur Thistlewood's last words. 
The crowd actually welcomed his words and called for the heads of the authorities. Now, it, we've got to remember here that it wasn't complete fantasy that the public were ready for rebellion. But the man who thought he could do it was about to be put to the noose, where his body was left hanging for 30 minutes before being cut down and his head removed, shown to the crowd. One by one, the four remaining conspirators all received the same fate. With James Inged leaving them with the final words that I shall finish this with. Give me death or liberty. Nice. And that is my take on the Cato Street Conspiracy. It's good. <clears throat> it's a good story. It, it, it seems almost like harsh punishment now, but at the same time we have to remember that they would have been coming off the aftermath of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. So the French Revolution is what uh, frightened the government most. Oh, yeah. They were very aware of what had, what had happened in France. Could quite well have happened in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Probably Ireland at the time, sorry. So any, saw, any sign of rebellion or... Dissidence. Dissidence was stamped out. Yeah. So you either sent fuck off over at the other side of the world or we'll take your head. Yeah. And there are depictions, like there, there was artists' sketches done of their heads being held. Some of them are, like, I don't mind gruesome, but some of them are like, you know, the eyes are still open, being held by the hair, and I'm like, fuck, that's like, that's supposed to be like a Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves kind of movie-style stuff, but that, you know, obviously this is all what really happened. Yeah, they're contemporary sketches. Um, so the Give Me Death of Liberty was, was a direct taking from... The French Revolution. The French were liberty, egality, uh, fraternity. They were all about, you know, being one um, and and uh, of the people and not of a ruling elite. And so it was a kind of. It was definitely a. It was definitely words that were meant to have something. These people were not stupid. No, they didn't. They didn't complete what they were doing, not because they weren't capable of. I do believe that if there hadn't been a spy in their midst that this conspiracy would have been something that we would know a lot more about today. Yeah, that it would have been popular culture like the Guy Fox plot. Probably we wouldn't know about Guy Fox. No, because he failed. But he failed. And if these guys had been um, not caught out, I've no doubt they would have managed it. They, were, they, were in, they weren't daft people. Arthur Thistlewood was a clever man. and He just fell on the wrong side of the law at the time. Another interesting point of view might be that at the time of the Guy Fox plot, um, the government would have been wanting to make an example of Catholics who were plotting against them. Whereas the, at the time of this plot, they would have wanting to they would have been wanting to suppress uh, knowledge about it to avoid it encouraging others. This was definitely a stamp this out. Yeah, this was absolutely a stamp this out moment. And like I say, there was a crowd of 100,000 there that were there to... They weren't there to watch the hanging. Well, they were, in part, there to watch the hanging. But they were also there because a huge majority of these people will have felt the same way, but just would not have stood up to try and kill people. Yeah. Obviously, it takes a few to change... What is it? It takes a few people to change the millions or whatever it is. These were the few people that could have changed it for the millions. We'd be li- we would be living in a completely different world right now if they'd been successful, but... Like I said at the beginning, I don't disagree with the Spencerian way of things. 
but they were all a bit bonkers. And that's not the way you fix things. No. The ends don't always justify the means. Indeed. You can't build bigger principles when you compromise smaller principles to make those principles. The whole thing falls down like a house of cards. Absolutely. And by killing one man to make things better, you've still killed a man. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I just found it a really interesting case when I started reading about it. And like I say, there was loads of bits in there that I'll go, oh God, I'm going to have to go back and read more about that again. Yeah. Which I'm fine with, but I was like, how do I get this into one podcast? Um, and we couldn't, so we will show, we will revisit the Peterloo uh, massacre because any, anywhere that on government orders leaves eighteen people in British soil dead, I find wholly unacceptable and fully deserving of an episode in itself. Yeah, cavalry regiment involved was probably the Coldstream Guards. I don't actually know off the top of my head. I would. Uh, I, I stopped reading because I was like, I need to fight, finish writing the script for tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I would guess it was the Coldstream Guards. I mean, it would be Manchester, so yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, we will leave it at that and say that that is the story of Arthur Thistlewood and the Cato Street Conspiracy. I will say, however, before I end and get on to the usual nonsense we do at the end, a lot of the research I took from uh, a man uh, called Vic Gart- Gartrell. He's a professor. Um, a South African gentleman, um, much, much smarter than I am. And if you look up the Cato Street conspiracy, you will find his lecture that he gave at the Gresham University talking about the Cato Street conspiracy. And he goes into a lot more detail about stuff that I, A, don't understand, and B, didn't have time to chuck in here. Um, so if you want to know a bit more from a man smarter than I am, please do go. Just stick it in at YouTube, and it's the there's like a 40-odd minute video there. Uh, and he talks about it, and he's he's, he's a very well delivered and sp- yeah, a good speaker. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Watched it a couple of times. Uh, and on that note, um, what do we do? Oh, some of you will have seen that we have uh, posted our thousand follower T-shirt competition. Yes. If you are following us on all three social media channels, please join us on the uh, Twisted Britain discussion group and leave a comment on the post that is pinned at the top of the page. If you do so, you'll be entered into competition to uh, win a one of three t-shirts. Al and I will both have one on, um, probably more often than we should do. Way more often than I should do. Uh, I, you should get me two. Yeah, maybe I will do, actually. Uh, and I'll make them, like... For hygiene reasons. Turn inside outable. And then Reversible! Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll put up a uh, uh, picture of the design there. So if you're following us and all, please comment on... The post, and you'll be entered into a prize draw that I will draw on the 14th of May. It's a lovely design. I didn't even realise the first time I saw it that it says, uh, love you, thank you, bye, in hand. It's in, e- in emojis, in yes. Emojis. Got, thank you, love you, bye. I, I absolutely love that. It's just a wee funny thing. I thought I don't want to be overcomplicated, and it definitely has to say Twisted Britain, so there we are. Um, if you're not following us on the social medias, just go and do it. Uh, I'm not going to batter on about that. Um, if you get a chance uh, and you're online and you've liked what you've listened to, and if you've made it this far, I presume you have liked what you've listened to, uh, please do give us, a, uh, if you get two minutes, to go and put a rating and a review wherever you listen to it. Um, it apparently helps other people find it, and the more people listen to this, uh, the better it is. We might as well you know, get these funny wee cases into modern history. 
Um, I don't think I've got anything else to say, Al. Have you? Yeah, I am good. I can't wait for next week. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be really good. Um, Ali will start episode one of Twisted Britain's first ever two-part podcast. Um, the Pendle Witch Trials of Lancashire. There you go. Spoiler alert, everybody. They preempted the Pendle Witch Trials. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, Ali's been talking about it for a couple of weeks now, so I'm very much looking forward to it. It'll be very cool. Um, I've done all the CrimeCon stuff before. You've all heard me talking about CrimeCon. If you want to go hit us up, we've got a discount code you can use Twisted at checkout. It is a sweet-ass lineup that's going. It's getting better and better by the day. Uh, CrimeCon are also doing uh, online book clubs. They've just started their own podcast that I'm hopefully having a chat that Ali and I will take part in. I haven't actually told Ali about that yet, but we'll get to it. This is new. Where they're talking about doing, uh, they're trying to have podcasters on that are going to be at the event, taking part in their podcast and talking about how they got involved in the shows. So fresh in your mind, I can't really remember. Groovy. Um, so yeah, we'll try and get involved in that. Um, so yeah, if you're going to go there, hits up. We'll, I'll drink beer with you for sure. Um, still slowly convincing Ali. He seems fairly convinced he's going to come. Well, we'll get to the, we'll get to September and see what happens. Um, with that, um, I'll say as we say on our special edition t-shirt. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye. This is a special version of Isaac's Thank You, Love You, Bye because it made me laugh a lot. Thank you, love you, bye. I can hear myself.